0: Okay, hi and welcome back to another Guru Performance, We Do Science podcast. It's episode 34, uh, got that uh, one right. Um, so today I have um, uh, another uh, guest expert from this side of the pond. I know you're all starting to get uh, fed up with all the uh, North Americans, as brilliant as they are, so I felt I needed to get some more local accents on board, although um, my guest here possibly isn't a local. <laughs> uh, so anyway, welcome Lee Hamilton.
1: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, hi mate. So I'll uh, I'll let you introduce your, yourself a bit, but what I do know about you, because I follow you on uh, Twitter and I've read um, your papers and so on, is that you are a lecturer in health and exercise sciences at the School of Sport at the University of Stirling. You're a Uh, a colleague of uh, Professor Kevin Tipton, who, Mm -hmm. of course, is um, well known to our podcast and will be coming back again soon. Um, I am probably going to leave it at that and let you tell us a bit more about yourself and what you're currently up to in terms of research.
1: Okay, so I started my career, I guess, with undergrad in sports biomedicine Mm. um, in Dundee. I actually did my honours project in Henning Vackahagger's lab and I was chatting to Henning yesterday and I worked out it was... It was over 10 years ago, since I did my undergrad in his lab,
0: time um, flies when you're having fun, it does.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah. and then that, that was a fantastic experience, and that led to a PhD in Keith Barr's lab, right? Yep, yeah. um, who's coming games, on soon. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so, so hopefully, I'll get in there with all the interesting stuff first. And
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah, that will give him nothing to talk about. Yeah. No, and, and actually, when we were discussing this, um, you know, what topics to talk about and so on, and the fact that you did train in Keith Barr's, um, lab and some of these topics at first may appear to be the same topics but what I think is particularly interesting um, about science at this level which is not something we're immediately aware of when we initially start to study this stuff is you know we look at topics in our textbooks it kind of you kind of get the impression that this stuff is, is pretty well known. Uh, once it's in the textbook, that's it, and we're moving on to the next topic. But of course, that isn't the case. And, and actually, what we're going to discover here, I guess, is we'll, we'll get into a few things. And um, and I guess Keith Barr is probably going to come at it at a different angle, which is, yeah. which is the brilliant thing about this. We can all have different opinions, and it doesn't mean we're right or wrong. As I've discussed in many podcasts with people, um, usually it's a case of... We've barely scratched the surface on most of these topics. So speaking of scratching the surface, now, I'm not entirely sure what we're going to call this podcast until we've actually done it, because you did supply me with a very thorough list of topics here. But I think loosely, let's get into this, this topic of protein synthetic response. Mm-hmm. Um, now, some people will have an idea of what that means. Uh, there's different... Ways of placing that, and of course, it's my favourite uh, context, um, which I'm sure I'll throw into into this. But off air, we were briefly discussing this from the point of view of you know what it means, um, the relevance of that to things like nutrition, performance, training, supplements. What's important, what isn't? Um, but I, but I guess let's, like I do in most of my podcasts, why don't we set the stage here and have you discuss what what this. This topic is all about and what it means.
1: Okay, so uh, I guess <clears throat> most of your listeners would probably have heard like Kev Tipton and yeah. Stu Phillips talk about protein synthesis, and so they're they're the experts in that side of things and measuring protein synthesis in vivo in humans. Um, whereas my research was sort of related to the molecular mechanisms that control protein synthesis. So what goes on inside the black box in muscle mm. that that regulates the protein synthetic response to either resistance exercise. Or feeding, and I guess you could consider protein synthesis as one arm of the adaptive response. So there's a remodeling event that goes on in muscle after resistance exercise, or any kind of exercise really. And the protein synthetic response is, is essential to part of that adaptation. You also need the breakdown to occur as well. Um, but in order to get, you know, accrue muscle mass, you have to have your protein synthetic response higher than the breakdown response. Right. Um, and so I guess my my research revolved around understanding those sort of molecular signals that, that, that act as checkpoints or control points in regulating that, that protein-synthetic response. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, it did. And in the previous podcast, which was with uh, Stephen Guirnay and we were talking about neurobi- neurobiology and stuff, we, we kind of delved a bit into that whole nutrient-sensing or particularly energy-sensing and how the brain will respond to that and manipulate things like hunger and satiety and all that sort of thing and with Librean in particular we did get a bit into into the you know signaling pathways and that sort of thing but I I do think this is a particularly interesting area because it's not something really that's covered much at all at least it didn't when I was initially and this is a long time ago now but they didn't really get into this and the importance of signaling signaling pathways and one area that you've highlighted of course is um uh, and I'll let you describe the background here, but it's sort of a more is not better type approach with this. Stuff, yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, kind of the example I use is sort of like a dimmer switch analogy. So, you know, you, a lot of people will hear, you know, folk talk about mTOR and mTOR complex one. And and the reason why a lot of people in the sort of bodybuilding world and sort of supplement industry talk about mTOR is because it's considered a a central governor of the muscle growth response. Mm -hmm. So we know if we inhibit mTOR with with drugs or or knock it out genetically, um, you lose the ability to grow your muscle um, in response to loading. So it's an essential component of of the, the resistance exercise adaptive response. So if that protein is impaired... You're unable to grow as effectively, but in in young, healthy people where the system um, works normally, what we find is that if, if you imagine you've got a dimmer switch that turns a hundred degrees. Um, you know, the dimmer switch would be equivalent to mTOR, and the brightness of the room would be equivalent to the protein synthetic response. That dimmer switch might turn through 100 degrees, but you maybe only need to turn it by 30 degrees to get the room as bright as possible. So turning it any further doesn't really do anything. There's no point in turning that dimmer switch any further. And that's pretty much how mTOR—well, how we think mTOR works There's a lot of fairly good evidence from dose response studies in, in animals um, and cell lines and. Um, there's some dose response studies in humans as well that, that sort of validate that idea that you only need about 30% of the maximal activity of that enzyme to maximize maximise the protein synthetic response. And so there's a lot of supplement companies now sort of selling this idea if you take, you know, mTOR activators, that that's going to enhance the adaptive response. When, when actually, in fact, if, you know, if you're not going to turn, your you might turn your dimmer switch all the way around to 100 degrees as much as you want by hitting it with other other compounds, but it's not going to improve the brightness of the room. It's the same with protein synthesis. It's very unlikely that, that that compounds in a healthy system, the compounds that target mTOR, are actually going to improve the adaptive response.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, and I want to get into that more, but I mean, I've, you know, there is a problem with that whole concept, and that is um, the photograph of the, the ripped guy with the massive guns um, is proof, isn't it? I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that they will throw a bit of sciencey-sounding stuff onto a label because somebody's read somewhere how important M talk is, or, or whatever. You know, uh, I think a while ago it was, you know, influences uh, insulin growth factor, or you know, Mm -hmm. they're they're, they're all popping out there, and yet they'll also throw some photoshopped picture of someone who's probably never even taken the product. I mean, before we get more into the science of this, I mean, how do you feel as a scientist about this sort of cherry-picking of scientific terminology to suggest that a product actually works?
1: Yes, I mean, it's, it's really frustrating. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, but there's there's nothing really we can do about it except try to put out the correct information and try to educate people as much as we can. Yeah. And I guess that's why this, you know, podcast and stuff, is such a, a great idea.
0: Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, I mean it it it's it's interesting, and th- the evolution of science has. I mean, it's such a fluid thing, isn't it? I mean, what we what student sports science students or graduate students were learning twenty years ago is has, has changed. Uh, considerably and of course you guys keep changing your minds all the time so it doesn't <laughs> help um so um since i discussed evolution of science i think it's a good segue um you had made some notes uh, here for me and and uh, you you had mentioned this good question which is how how did this system evolve anyway
1: yeah i mean we we, we don't know how really how. How these systems evolved, I guess, like any, we know that the pathways conserved from yeast to man. Um, Usually if something's conserved like that far back, it means it's really, really essential to to survival of organisms. Um, I guess we don't know how it evolved, but we can theorize about why it evolved in that setting. Because, you know, you sort of think about it, it sounds quite wasteful. If you only need 30% of the maximum activity, well, why do you need the rest of it? What's the point of having the rest of the enzyme there? What's the point of investing the energy to make that enzyme when you only need 30% of its maximal activity to maximize the response? Um, and, and sort of when you look at physiological systems, you take cardiac output as an example, or um, ventilation rate, you know, those things have a massive reserve capacity, you know, they have a safety factor, what people call safety factors built in. The safety factors exist everywhere, so if you take a lift, for example, the safety factor in the cable of a lift is 20, so when you look at the number on the, on, on the lift, it says this is a capacity, it's usually 20 times that it can take. Mm. Um, and if you if you take the safety factor in your cardiac output, that's probably about fourfold in, in a sort of a standard man, so and go from five to twenty liters at maximal exercise. So there's safety factors built into every pretty much every physiological system. Gut absorption is about two, so your gut has a double the capacity to absorb what you normally eat. And if you remove half half of the gut of an animal. It, it will adapt, and again, it will have double the capacity what it normally eats. And so, I think it's a very similar system in in molecular signaling, coupling molecular signaling to physiological output measures. There are safety factors built into them, and um, so there's you know there's a reserve capacity that it allows for for you know basically when things are stimulated or when things are um, perturbed. There's at least a safety factor there, so the system still works effectively.
0: Yeah, it's fa- I, I, I'm thinking as you say this. Not just ultimately um, about the physiology and molecular stuff and you know performance nutrition, which we'll get into in a second, but also just from a, a sort of an evolutionary survival of the species sort of scenario and it these knowing this stuff does kind of remind you that the body is able to subsist on varying amounts mm-hmm. of different foods and substrates and 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 it still has to keep sort of progressing in its evolution. And this idea that we're somehow supposed to fix, uh, fix ourselves onto a very specific and narrow sort of window, like 2000 calories. And if we're, you know, just a few hundred calories, either way we're going to suddenly gain or lose weight. Or, you know, if we hit 24 grams of protein, uh, we're not going to get some muscle anabolic response. Whereas if we got 25 grams, you yeah, know, it, <laughs> it 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 does sometimes strike me that we do take some of this stuff too literally, which I guess is partly the problem with how um, science can get lost in translation a bit, and um, that's why I'm always going on about context. It it depends, you know. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, when you look at when you look at the physiology, when you look at the physiological output measures, um. You know, we we know that for someone that weighs around about 80-ish kilos, 20 grams of high-quality protein is enough to maximize the protein synthetic response. Mm. You know, what what does it matter? What happens, the molecular signals, you know, in in response to that? Well, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that you, you maximize the physiological output measure and you maximize the growth response. You know, trying to fiddle the system by manipulating mTOR with with you know silly compounds is, is probably going to be futile you know mm. you know people talk about small margins but you know the margins aren't that small you know the system's adaptive enough to respond to you know food and nutrition
0: yeah uh, well I, are, think, I think I think it I think some of this boils down to the fact that somebody saw that word in a textbook or in some mm. chart and said ah okay ATP, let's just supplement ATP. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it doesn't quite work that way. And, yeah, uh, I mean,
1: you, you just recycle your body weight in ATP. Yeah,
0: anyway, that's another. So I was having that conversation with Craig Sale at the weekend. It's, uh, uh, um, In fact, we're going to do a podcast all about context. That's, oh, brilliant. That is going to be my favorite. So anyway, um, just to move on then to the second part of that question then is, is I mean, why why does it even matter from a performance or nutrition perspective that, this system may have even
1: evolved this way. I mean, I, I guess there's, there's there's two main points to it. The, the the first take-home message is, you know, manipulating your nutrition or taking supplements that are going to artificially activate mtor are unlikely to, you know, yield any more benefit above what food and exercise will already do. You know, especially if you're young and healthy and you know a, a natural competitor. Mm. <laughs> um, the, the other the other reason it's important is because you know, if if you think that the threshold, if, if you only need to kick over the threshold, at th- you know, if the threshold is at 30% of the maximum, um, that's not a huge threshold to kick over to get a maximal response. And so with resistance exercise and nutrition, we know you get a maximal response there. And you're going to have to take that signal, the mTOR signal, down really, really low. So, you know, well below 30% of its maximum before you significantly impact protein synthesis and so from the point of view of you know people worry a lot about the, the interference effect and they worry a lot about planning their endurance training around about the resistance exercise and so you'd need to do something really drastic in your endurance exercise sessions to substantially impact you know the the, the ability to fully activate protein synthesis in, in response to the, the, the resistance exercise and nutrition and in fact the, the recent work from William Apro and um, we, we helped him out with some analysis and that suggests that you know, even if you do a high-intensity interval session, um, so they, they beasted these guys like absolutely beasted them with high-intensity interval sets, and then they took them through a, a, a pyramid resistance exercise set, which again, like the Geneva Convention would probably ban the protocol <laughs> if they got hold of it. It's mm-hmm. absolutely grueling protocol, um, and in that setting, the, the high-intensity interval training, which potently activates AMPK, which we know in cells and, and in animal systems, inhibits mTOR and inhibits protein synthesis. In that context, in vivo, in humans, we couldn't detect any interference effects. So we couldn't detect any ability of endurance exercise or the HIIT training to impair the activation of mTOR. And although it's in a slightly different model, there's also data that, have, that has looked at protein synthesis and got, and got really good protein synthetic responses. And when you precede resistance exercise with sort of a standard, like 60% of your VO2 max for an hour type endurance exercise... The, the protein synthetic response to resistance exercise after isn't impaired. And so there's a lot of concern around about, you know, oh, I don't want to inhibit mTOR by doing exercise and activating AMPK. Well, you need to do really substantially activate AMPK beyond probably what you can do with, you know, a normal person could do with endurance exercise to inhibit the system. So, you know, the, the thing I always say is, and, and Dan Ogborn actually posted on Twitter the other day, he said, you know, don't worry about the molecules, just, just worry about your, your programming, do what, do what fits. Yeah. You know, if you, if you want to do your resistance exercise after your endurance exercise, if you can perform your strength training better, do that. Or if you do it the other way around and you perform better the other way around, then do that. The main thing is that the resistance exercise enhances the protein synthetic response to feeding for the next 24 to 48 hours, whereas the resistance exercise session in itself just gives a, a, a transient increase in protein synthesis. And if you lose that, that's, that's probably not that big a deal because, you know, you're going to have maybe eight meals after that. Yeah. Where you've got an enhanced protein synthetic response, and I, I'd take the response to eight meals any day over over a short, you know, one or two hour activation after
0: yeah, exercise. Yeah, it, it's interesting <clears throat> how much of this matters if one is discussing the science, mm. but how much of that actually matters to us is another conversation, obviously. Yeah. and that. Is where I feel people start to lose their priorities. You know, I think, I mean, because that—that's another podcast, uh, of course. I keep coming up with new podcasts, so this is great. But you've mentioned interference, and we've we've mentioned it a few times, but not in any great detail. I think mm-hmm. since I've, I think you would be able to answer this better than most. So let let's just quickly do a little red herring here, just to. Um, just to satisfy my own uh need but also for the listeners um who aren't probably sure what we're talking about here because it's a relatively more recent concept interference um you might hear terms like concurrent training so do you want to do you want to discuss that um um because many you know we've got triathletes we've got people who obviously do multiple training sessions a day we've got um Uh, people who who, who sports scientists and S&C coaches who are working with athletes who might be doing skill sessions, um, you know, strength training and some form of endurance all in the same day, which I guess is examples of all those. But could could you just sort of describe that concept for us?
1: Yeah, so I guess the the interference effect or the concurrent training effect was, was first defined by Hickson back in the 80s, I think, back before I was even born. Um, and, and, and again, it's one of those studies that would probably have been banned by the Geneva Convention. Again, <laughs> you know, it was an absolutely grueling study. And uh, I, was, I was talking to some of my colleagues about you know, potentially repeating some aspects of that. one we would like, we'd never, get, we'd never get students to complete that protocol. Mm. It's basically what Hickson did was he, he took um, three groups of guys. Um, one group just did resistance training alone. Um, actually, it was two groups of guys. One, one, one group did resistance training alone, and then the other did um, resistance training combined with endurance training, and I think in total, the concurrent group was doing something like um, eleven, eleven sessions a week, which you know was quite a lot and quite intense. Um, and so what they found was that after about eight weeks of training, you know everybody, everybody in both groups was getting stronger and stronger. Um, but at sort of about the eight week mark of training, um, the, the the strength gains in the group that was doing endurance training as well, the concurrent group, and their strength gains started to tail off. And by I think it was a twelve week protocol the guys that were doing resistance training alone um, were significantly stronger than, than the guys in the concurrent groups. So the guys that mixed, that combined the resistance training and the endurance training. Mm. And so this sort of, let, you know, I mean, I guess this was sort of part of part of the idea around about how this works at the molecular level was sort of brought about by our understanding that AMPK which responds to endurance exercise, is an energy stress sensor. It's activated by endurance exercise, and we, we discovered that that impairs mTOR activity and impairs protein synthesis. And so it brought about this idea that potentially the mechanism by which endurance exercise interferes with strength gains um, could be due to that AMPK activation by the endurance exercise and it inhibiting the ability of mTOR to get activated and then the ability to activate protein synthesis. When you look at this, so I mean, for, first of all, none of the studies have fully repeated what Hickson did in the eighties, um, probably because nobody would get students or, or, you know, ex-students, even athletes, to repeat that sort of protocol. Um, and the other, the other side was there's a lot of different models being used: unilateral models, bilateral models, uh, endurance training before, resistance training, endurance training after. But the consensus seem to be, seems to be that you need quite a large dose of endurance training um, in order to, to interfere with the strength gains and interfere with the, the hypertrophic response. And I think the molecular signals governing that response have been overblown, and I think mo- most of the interference effect is likely due to, to neuromuscular um, responses. So there's probably something about the neuromuscular control of endurance exercise that potentially interferes with your ability to recruit you know, motor neurons when you, when you then shift to resistance exercise. Um, but yeah, I think I think the the molecular interference effect is is very overblown. Of course, you can use our our knowledge of the molecular control of adaptations to sort of, sort of as hypothesis drivers and to sort of you know logically build you know a program that you think you know might work. But none, none of that's proven. It's sort of mm. you can just sort of use it to, to say you know well if you do your endurance training in the morning fasted. Um, you know, and restrict carbs after that. You might be able to enhance the adaptive response to endurance training, and then feed before you do your resistance exercise, and then get plenty of protein and carbs in after the resistance exercise to enhance the adaptive response to resistance exercise. And we sort of you can build that logic around about your understanding of you know the molecular pathways that control these things. And it's something that um, you know, what Joaquin um, Pires um wrote in the, the the review that we we did together. And was Andy Phillip and Keith and Dan were you know that you know that's that's perfectly fine to do that, but again, you sort of have to head home that none of that's actually research proven no one's done that study in and of itself of fasted endurance exercise with fed resistance exercise and done a training study with that, but we're just sort of building that concept around about what we know about the molecular signals, but I think in terms of you know how much endurance training is going to impair your strength gains and whether that's down to AMPK or not, I think it's very much overblown and, you know, and, and endurance training can actually, you know, lead to some benefits for, for, for strength athletes to improve your, your anaerobic capacity and whatnot. So you can sure. get more volume. Um,
0: and genetics, of course. I mean, well, yeah. <laughs> keep it simple. I mean, we, yeah. we definitely all respond differently to these things. Uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm going to get a few experts on to talk about genetics. and not, a big fan of where that's currently going commercially but um <laughs> but uh, we don't need to go there um so you you just said something though that made me think as well just another mini segue i've got lots of little red herrings here um is the importance of of not excluding older science um people keep you know you keep hearing people talking about um You know, if 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 you're going to cite a study and it's more than ten years old or whatever, that's you know just not the done thing. And yet, you've just made it quite clear there are a number of studies, many actually, that were done in the past that you couldn't get ethics for now, and they are extremely valuable. And and you know, old some old studies can be incredibly important to our current understanding of things, partly because, as I said you can't get ethics to do some of those things but maybe we should stop judging papers purely on the basis of when they were published but maybe just on the strength of the science itself
1: yeah i mean absolutely i mean the Hickson study was solid you know mm. it, was, it was it was a fantastic study it was well ahead of its time um but yeah i mean get getting people to replicate that nowadays i don't think i don't think you would get you know i think that the groups in that in that study must have been, you know, fairly elite athletes to handle the amount of volume, um, yeah. or close to elite athletes to, to handle the amount of volume that they were put through. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't think you could get standard Joe Blogs off the street to to recruit to that study.
0: Um, yeah, we we need to get back on topic in a second. But you've just made me think of another question, which is in the kind of studies that we're talking about here, molecular signaling, um, all this stuff that we've just been talking about. Um how important is the study participant to this research and 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 speaking of context are we is there a particular type of study participant that that maybe this stuff relates to because we haven 't really looked at other kinds of people
1: uh i guess how do, how do you mean like you mean, well
0: I mean like you know obviously you you're assessing people or animals or or whatever in your in your research i 'm just thinking of, of you know, like some people may think, well, there's a big difference between people that are trained and untrained Mm. or old or young or possibly male or female or whatever. I mean, is there, how narrow has the, you know, the study sort of selection for study participants been? Because I'm presuming that whilst this is a rapidly growing area, just because you've obviously got your hands on a lot more technology now than they used to have. um, You know, is there anything there that we should be mindful of when we're thinking about this stuff?
1: I think one of the things that mars a lot of the the studies around about, you know, the molecular control of adaptation to exercise is that a lot of the studies use untrained individuals. Um, And so a lot of those studies, what what you'll probably see or what you're detecting at the molecular level is not necessarily a specific, a mode-specific exercise response. So say you're trying to differentiate between resistance exercise responses, and endurance exercise responses, and looking for a molecular signal that's specific to either of those modes. Um, the problems with using on-trained subjects is you really what you get is a generalized stress response. Mm. So everything's activated by everything. And there's, there's a lot of studies, well, there's some studies now that show that mTOR is activated by, by certain types of endurance exercise. And for a long time, it was thought that mTOR was the resistance exercise molecule and you do resistance exercise, mTOR gets activated and you grow, and it doesn't get activated by endurance exercise, but in actual fact, there's, there's certain modes of endurance exercise that will activate mTOR, and AMPK is the same, so AMPK was long thought of as, you know, the endurance exercise molecule, it's activated specifically by endurance exercise, not necessarily by resistance exercise, and that leads to, you know, the adaptive responses that you see with endurance exercise. But there's really good evidence now, and multiple studies have shown that, that resistance exercise really potently activates AMPK as well. And so, what, what we see in non trained subjects is likely this generalized stress response, where you know everything gets activated by anything. You know, and if you take a couch potato and put them on a bike for an hour, well, that's probably going to be anabolic because you know they haven't loaded their legs effectively for a long time. So that in itself will be an anabolic stimulus. Mm. Um, and, and, and so what you'll see is yeah you'll see the activation of some of the anabolic pathways you'll see the activation of some of the endurance pathways but I think what what would be good to do and, and you know, certainly Vernon Coffey's group have been really good at this um, and there's been a couple of other other groups have done the same thing they started to use um, trained subjects so groups that are trained either for resistance exercise or groups that are trained either in endurance exercise and then they cross over the stimuli and what you see there is you, know, you sort of see more of a narrowing of of the the exercise response in trained subjects, but again it, the output measures that that are used in those studies often are are very subjective measures. So Western blotting, anybody that knows me knows I hate Western blotting, and that's kind of the <laughs> the standard measure that we use to measure molecular responses, and it's, it's a horrible system to use. And so again, that's another one of the things that, that mars these studies, not just the subject selection. Um, and so it's really difficult to pick out what the exercise signals are, but sort of I think moving forward, you know, we as exercise scientists need to start thinking about how, how best to use subjects to get, you know, the most specific molecular response that, yeah. that we're looking for.
0: Um, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, generally, people are quite fixed in their ways, aren't they, in terms of how they feel we can maximize muscle hypertrophy, for example, mm. since you mentioned it. And as you've said actually there's multiple methods to stimulate muscle growth and you know metabolic stress load you know uh, actual mechanical loading uh people you know to keep it simple people will you know go to failure how many reps sets? you know people talk about five by five or four yeah. sets of 12 or whatever but actually they kind of all work it it just depends on where you are so you know i i, I think that studying all this stuff about M and and all that doesn't really help us answer the basic question that a practitioner or a coach um, might have, which is how do we actually maximise muscle growth and performance necessarily? I mean, what, where where would you go with that line of thinking?
1: I mean, the 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 big problem there is that you have to then do training studies, hmm. um, and the only way to to determine which you know optimal is a tricky. Term to use it's a, you know but I guess it sort of fits the bill here. If you want to optimize muscle growth, the only way to determine if you've and en- you know engaged a protocol that's going to be optimal for muscle growth is to do a training study and assess muscle growth. Um, protein synthesis measures are great; they can give a really good indication. But ultimately, you know, wh- what you want to know at the end of the day is that person actually getting more muscle and are they getting stronger? Um, yeah. And so the only the only route to go there is with with training studies. I think the the issue with some of the molecular stuff is that it, it gave exercise scientists an output measure to study with acute stimuli. So you could, you know, you get in 10 subjects, put them on a bike, take out some biopsies, and then you've got a study, you know, pretty much complete. It's fairly, you know, it, it's not as time intensive as what like a 12 week training study would be. And so, although we, we were able to get a lot of information about, you know, the molecular signals that are regulated by exercise, we haven't necessarily taken that forward then to, To see what what's what's best for the adaptive response but i think you know it's it's like you say i mean any any kind of resistance training program is going to have some benefit it's going you're going to get some kind of strength gains and muscle hypertrophy gains but which one's best is you know
0: yeah i I mean the question you know the question that lots of people don't actually ask is what is the exercise that you actually enjoy doing the most what you Mm -hmm. know factors like like compliance and consistency and all those sorts of things you know people a very black and white world this is my way I mean I know one of your favorite things is is these people who sell sort of online programs or um we'll get into supplements in a minute because that's that you know I may have to um uh, uh, induce some sort of uh, expletive reducing software on this but, but but basically you see it all the time, you know, such and such super coach has got their 5x5 yeah. five five routine which is guaranteed to to work and you pay a bit of money you know, for their sort of endorsed XXX endorsed program, I mean clearly that's just BS, isn't it?
1: I mean, I, th- I think there's a, there's a lot to be said for like intelligent Programming. Of course, um, I think mm. if you take a- any kind of couch potato and put them on any program, and they're going to get a response, but they're going to plateau at some point. Mm. Um, but I think if if you can get someone who's intelligent about about programming, they can help you break those plateaus. But mm. ultimately, for the standard couch potato that just wants to get a bit fitter and a bit stronger, any kind of resistance training programs, you know, and the best one to pick is probably the one that will be safest for them. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think. A lot of these things are oversold. They're, they're trying to sell like you know a magic bullet, as it were, and the magic bullet doesn't exist. The magic bullet is whatever you can do consistently.
0: Well, what I don't... what I, I really don't get how much money people spend on things like sort of online coaching programs and whatnot. And for, for the listeners who do do this, please don't take this the wrong way. I'm not suggesting that, you know, it's wrong. There are people who simply don't have access to professionals by virtue of where they live or their circumstances or whatnot but the point is is there are large numbers of people that are well educated and trained in strength and conditioning science for example who who are very well placed to assess you where you are just a few you don't have to have like 20 sessions that cost a mortgage you know but to have that expertise where someone can assess where you are and combine multiple factors um, which are important, um, including, you know, your sort of readiness to take upon training, uh, technique and form is obviously, you know, it's not just how many reps and volume. I mean, it's how you perform it, which is, you know, it's like, I guess I I kind of feel like it's learning to drive online. You know, there's so much more to it than that. But given the fact that there is a great deal of expert practitioners that exist out there, um, we we should maybe be seeking them rather than in the flesh, rather than online. But yeah,
1: I that's that's where I'm really lucky with being in Stirling. You know, we've got the, you know, the Scottish Institute of Sport just across the road, and so you know I went across the road and spoke to one of the strength coaches, and I, I get one of their guys to to do my program, and he checks my form and stuff. And I mm. think for for someone like me, that's that's fantastic because I, I, you know. Every now and again, I'll need somebody to come in and you know, rep max tests and check my form and check that I'm doing things right. And, and then it's just a matter of going away with the program and yeah. following the program. But I think if you're an advanced lifter already, then it's, it's fine to use some of these guys that are, you know, like Josh Hancock, for instance, apparently, he's really good at online coaching. Sure. Um, but, you know, I, I wouldn't get any benefit from going to Josh Hancock because I, I still need somebody to yeah. give me that advice in the gym, whereas somebody no, who's you, an advanced lifter can... Yeah, you,
0: know, you made a good point. I I, so. I guess the... The people whose wallets get raped the most are usually <laughs> the people who need the most help. Yeah, yeah. You know, the people that are semi-advanced, sure, it's fine-tuning. Um, but there are, an au- there are an awful lot more people out there who don't need fine-tuning. And I guess we, we need to have some sort of threshold of, of you know, uh, uh, of, of how one determines at what point you really should say to people, look, you know, start off at the basics, get some help locally. And then when you're ready, let's let's Mm -hmm. take some advanced knowledge. Um, so anyway, look, let's, let's get back to, um, the story here. I think we were talking about, um, hypertrophy and how to maximize muscle growth and performance. Um, so acute exercise itself only has a, a modest effect on protein synthesis itself. So, of course, there is factors that that need to be integrated with that. What I mean, what are what are those things?
1: Well, <clears throat> I guess I guess the point of sort of what I make here is that you know, with acute exercise, yep, you get a, a stimulus in protein synthesis. You mm. also get a, a stimulated protein breakdown. And then when you feed the system, protein synthesis exceeds um, breakdown, and you you get into positive. Protein balance, so you start to accrue protein, and so the resistance exercise basically sensitizes the system to feeding for the next 24 to 48 hours or whatever it is. Um, and so it kind of you know you sort of think of it as like a setting the gain on the system. So if you think you know if you activate say mTOR by a certain amount, you get x amount of protein synthesis. Um, th- there's potentially factors in there that could modify the gain. So you only need to activate mTOR by a small, very small amount then to get the same degree of protein synthesis. Um, and so, I guess the, the key compound that we're looking at at the minute is, is fish oil. And, mm. and there's a lot of a lot of guys working around about fish oil, and that's sort of how we think fish oil might be working. Um, so Bettina Mittendorfer's labs done some fantastic work and showed that you know the, the protein synthetic response to well, we call it simulated nutrition. So they, they infuse amino acids into the bloodstream. It's called a hyperaminoacidemic clamp. So we kind of class it as simulated nutrition because it bypasses the gut. But under those circumstances, subjects, and, and this is, holds true for young and old subjects, um, those subjects that have been supplemented with, with fish oil for, I think, it's eight weeks, I think they did in those studies, they get an enhanced protein synthetic response to the simulated nutrition. And there's also a resistance exercise study. Um, I think it was a 90-day resistance training protocol in elderly subjects. And again, they were the, the group that was sub- Supplemented with fish oil had greater strength gains in response to the training, and then sort of our own our own work's unpublished yet. I mean, this is sort of driven by Kev Tipton. Um, was a Chris McGlory was a PhD student that drove the work, um, and and I sort of helped out with some of the analysis on it. Um, but it's been presented at ECSS, so I'm, I'm fine to talk about it just now. But okay, what we find there is that supplementing young healthy guys with fish oil didn't necessarily enhanced the protein synthetic response what we think it did is it enhanced the gain on the mTOR response so the mTOR response was much reduced in fact it was completely ablated in the guys that were were fed fish oil and so you sort of look at that and think well you know fish oil is inhibiting the activation of mTOR and logically you'd sort of think well that's a bad thing but actually what what we think it's done is it's enhanced the ability of mTOR to signal to protein synthesis so you need less of an activation to get the same you know the same gain if you know what i mean
0: do You know what now that i 'm listening to this i 've had a genius idea that I think 's going to make me a lot of money uh, <laughs> i i 've decided to call this a Right. <laughs> so i 'm going to get out of my gym with these uh, these special pills and tell people i've got i 've got some megabolic uh, substances for sale <laughs> uh, and i wish I wish it noted here in 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 the, uh, in the public domain that it's to be attributed to me, this concept of a megabolic stimulus. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's fascinating though, isn't it? That we're not just talking about the things that you would immediately associate with protein synthesis, either the stimulus or, or protein or, or carbohydrates that are involved in fueling that, but something like fish oil. And God knows, God knows what else is out there. That we compounds that you may find in anything from broccoli to cucumber, you know. Um, I think
1: the thing is, we've kind of been asked in the wrong well, not necessarily asking the wrong question. Mm. The main question is, how is mTOR activated by resistance exercise and how does that control protein synthesis? To Mm. to my mind, the key question is, what is it about resistance exercise that sensitizes the muscle to feeding for for the next 48 hours? Because that, to my mind, is the key adaptive process. You know, you only get this very short window of remodeling that occurs after resistance exercise, but it's those feeding responses in in the days after the resistance exercise has occurred that that drives the remodeling effect. So the question we need to ask ourselves as scientists now is not necessarily, what is it that's activating mTOR and protein synthesis after resistance exercise, but what is it about resistance exercise that is leading to this sensitization effect? And that seems to be synonymous with a lot of physiological output. So glucose uptakes the same um, endurance exercise basically sensitizes the muscle to insulin, so you need less insulin to get the same degree of of glucose uptake. Mm-hmm. And so, asking what is it about exercise that drives glucose uptake isn't necessarily the best question that's going to help us, you know, solve obesity or diabetes. It's how is exercise enhancing the sensitivity of those physiological output measures to you know to stimuli. And we, we think we have an idea that there's, there's some other proteins. So, if you think of the phosphorylation cascade, so like mTOR is part of a phosphorylation cascade, if you sort of think of those as the switches, on off switches for protein synthesis, say for instance, then there's other proteins that come into that that, you know, not necessarily phosphorylate, not kinases that phosphorylate proteins, but they might make other modifications that set the gain on the response. So, for any given activation of mTOR, if you have some of those gain setters activated, um, they might lead to a higher activation of protein synthesis. And we don't really know what those are. but some ideas, they might be, you know, there's a whole lot of what we call Asian-type responses, so right. acetylation, netylation, sumylation, right. phosphorylation is one of those things called a post-translational modification. Right. And, and any one of those things could be setting the gain on the response. And I think that's sort of where we need to start directing our, our attention is what what interventions can we introduce or you know what is it about exercise that, that induces that sensitization and like fish oil seems to enhance the sensitivity of the muscle to those stimuli and we need to find things that have that response and move away completely from mTOR activators because hmm. in a healthy system an mTOR activator is probably not going to give that much of a benefit unless unless mTOR activity is impaired yeah. um, which there's no real evidence to my mind that it, that it is.
0: Yeah so I guess it's it's less nutrient timing and more about nutrient priming, so to speak.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good term.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm on a roll here. Yeah. Uh, but I do – I mean, it's funny. You know, more I talk to guys like you and lately, you know, I've, I've had these chats with yourself and uh, obviously the neurobiology chat with Stephen Guilherme, Um Got into this a bit with um, even Martin, Martin Gabella, uh on the whole high-intensity interval thing and you know how that might be more about signaling than anyway we'll get... people can listen to that one and Lee Breen we got into this in, in quite a bit but the more I start to listen to all of you I really do feel that this this whole idea of sort of nutrient sensing and like I said nutrient priming which I may also be credited in history for uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, that now. yeah I mean these are and my omegabolics don't forget omegabolics, Uh, that might come across wrong depending on (laughs) which part of the world you're in and uh, what my accent comes across as but it it's it, it it is fascinating and we we in my own uh educational programs that I teach on the ISSN uh diploma for example we you know we get the likes of well we had um Kev Tipton and Stu Phillips and Lee Breen and Craig Sale and so on and uh my colleague at Guru Performance, Scott Robinson, you know, we keep, and James Morton, definitely, and Graham Close, guys. I, I sound like I'm at the Baftas now, just lifting off names. But they, these guys have all helped us and me. I, this has been a massive learning curve for me. The importance of understanding the biochemistry and and all this molecular stuff, because it is not just down to exercise, or the importance of eating. A food first approach to one's diet because yeah we've identified the protein and if it hits a certain leucine threshold and all that stuff and that just drives us to go down that that really quite commercially driven approach to this stuff well i'm just going to have whey protein just because the study showed that does not mean we shouldn't be eating foods that contain whey because they also have these other things that get involved in this nutrient priming type concept mm-hmm. so um there's a few other topics we want to get into but since i've discussed this business of supplements and and so on i mean do you want to carry on from where i i just sort of led into about the problem of trying to achieve all this just through supplements uh, which rely heavily on cherry picking phrases from research such as this
1: yeah, I mean, I get. I guess you know, one of the issues with some of the, the research studies around about like the dose response studies were all carried out with with a whey supplement, or I think some of them were carried out with egg protein, mm. um, and so those those are kinds of supplements. But you know, we know from the studies from like Luke van Loon's lab, where he's you know, where he labelled a cow um, with labelled phenylalanine, I think it was, and then he collected the milk, and he also slaughtered the cow and collected the meat, and then fed people either mince or steak, and was able to show that you know. The, the protein contained within that you know the amino acids that he labeled in that meat appeared in the muscle in the person so we, we know that that food stimulated protein synthesis to you know to a similar degree mm. so we know that food stimulates protein synthesis and we know that it's roughly around about for for an 80 kilogram healthy person post-exercise about 20 grams is enough to maximize that protein synthetic response and so if you can get a meal and all, all the protein guys like you know, Luke van Loon, Kev Tipton, Stu Phillips—all these guys will all say. You know, they'll ask them, do you take supplements? Like, I only take supplements if it's convenient. I like to eat my food, you know, mm. like to eat my protein mm. as opposed to drink it. And they'll all say, you know, as long as you get a meal containing you know 20 grams of high-quality protein, after you should you should be fine. Um, so yeah, I think the supplement industry has sort of tried to wrap itself around some of the you know these scientific terms. And, and almost try to legitimize itself with these scientific terms, but you know they're they're misselling those mm. terms. They're not necessarily telling any lies, but they're misselling and misrepresenting what those things mean. I think like the biggest example is like myostatin inhibitors. Like it's it's completely it's a completely ridiculous idea to to try and inhibit myostatin anyway, because we know from Chris Mendias' work and John Faulkner's lab that you know myostatin is essential to to healthy connective tissue and tendon function. So the animals that don't have myostatin have, you know, weak, brittle tendons. So although you knock out myostatin, completely obliterated um, as, you know, from birth, those animals grew up to be huge, like, absolutely like the Arnold Schwarzeneggers of the mouse world. Um, they've got weak, brittle tendons and, and defective connective tissue. And if you tell an athlete, yeah, I'm going to make you big and jacked, but, you know, you might be at risk of a you know tendon rupture or connective tissue tear, that's probably not a good thing. And so... If if a myostatin inhibitor was to be orally active, which it's highly unlikely to be, it probably wouldn't be a good idea to take it anyway. Because although it might, you know, lead to this improvement in muscle mass, it, it it's probably going to have the downside of impairing your connective tissue and tendon function. Hmm.
0: So, yeah, I, I guess you know, for all the science that we get into, people lose the real world application of this stuff. And another thought that came to me just there was. this is kind of sort of a, a bmw type thing in that real food is greater than the sum of its parts and i think that that's incredibly important um whereas supplements of course are just isolated now of course there's many reasons to use them strategically to balance out things you know for convenience purposes for protein for example obviously creatine particularly in um, creatine and leucine-rich things, particularly for vegetarians and so on. But that that concept that food is greater than its, some of its parts is clearly being proven by things that you've just discussed, for example, like the fact that fish oil may have some sort of nutrient-priming type concept or whatever. We just don't know enough about this, so we should not neglect the importance of this. And like Kevin Carroll said in a previous um, podcast, which you know, he, he, sort of the title alone explains it all, and that is Unleash the Power of Food. Yeah, uh, and we, we, we need to learn to re respect the food that, that we eat from a performance perspective because people they sort of lose sight of the fact that, that, that food isn't just for average people, it's also for athletes. And, mm. and I constantly remind people that that athletes. Um, aren't athletes first? They're humans first, athletes second. And and we, you know, we 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 have basic needs. Um, but look, you know, that we could go on for hours about this stuff. Um, and I mean, we're basically out of time here. But I I do suspect that there's many other topics we could get into. So I'm hoping we can get you back. I know I've invited you to come and lecture for us on the ISSN diploma. So I know my my uh, my student current. Students and uh, graduates are going to be wanting to hear more about this stuff, so we'll look forward to meeting you down here in London at some point. But yeah,
1: it'll be awesome. I'll just I'll just make one other yeah, please one do, small yeah. point if that's okay. Yes. I think I think from the point of view of like supplements and supplements at work, mm. you know, I think the key take home message is that you know one paper does not a paradigm shift. No, no, yeah. you know, so you know whey protein is hundred you know, I don't know how many papers, but lots of papers that back the use of whey protein creatine, there's lots of papers that back it. So there's a couple of these, you know, supplements that are purported to work in, you know, one study or one small study or, you know, very small effect sizes. Um, but, you know, those things have to be replicated over and over again in order for us to, to trust them. So I think you know yeah whey protein is a great supplement that's mm. very well proven fish oil has got a lot of a mm. lot of backing behind it as well yeah. um but some of these other products you know if you see a product that's got one citation against it it's it's probably not validated so i would say that
0: particularly from a not so kosher journal <laughs> yeah <laughs> which is uh, uh which is something i'm noticing I, I get nearly daily emails from some dodgy <laughs> journal asking me if i want to publish in their journal and oh it's getting scary isn't it um but that's another that's another podcast lee um listen mate i've gotta i've gotta cut cut this there um so Sorry. i really enjoyed having you on board today um i know more people can learn more about you and your research just by googling you of course and looking you up on pubmed and all that but um you are involved in some teaching as well not just research i understand so uh, folks
1: can learn a bit more about your programs, how? Uh, I guess our, our website's not that great, but they can check us out on the, the Sterling University website, or the Health and Exercise Sciences Research Group. Okay. Um, so, so we do a lot of the teaching for the, the sports science program on that. And I guess they can look us up on that. We also run a, an MPhil by research program as well. Um, which seems to be getting a bit more bit more popular. And The nice thing about that is there's no lectures or exams. You just do a research um, study for a year and then write it up as a thesis at the end of it. So
0: Fantastic. Um, I, it, is, it is impressive how many options for uh, postgraduate study uh, there is in this country, particularly. Uh, I know we have listeners all over the world and we've got many fine academic institutions in North America, US, Canada, of course, Australia, New Zealand and so on. But the UK, for such a relatively small country, it's a powerhouse yeah. in sports science or and related fields and physiology and so on it's exciting times exciting times so anyway let's end it there uh, that's the end of this we do science guru performance podcast if you want to learn more about it just go to guruperformance.com. you can also learn more about the educational programs we're involved with at the issn where um lee himself will be lecturing at some point so we're looking forward to that and of course i am now running the new msc in sports nutrition at middlesex university and look forward to seeing some of you guys there anyway i'm going to sign out there uh thanks again lee